Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode four. I hear the phonograph a-comin'. Do you recall reading the phrase, a new and wonderful phonograph, a few days ago? Make that 50,350 days ago? It was on a chilly December morning on the north coast of Wales. We had boiled eggs in our pockets, I think keeping us warm, and our thoughts were drifting to Aunt Gertrude's vanished hand and voice that is still. After wiping away a tear or two, I think what would have caught our attention next, as we continued reading the article, would have been the description of the mechanics of the machine itself. The nuts and bolts of the phonograph that the eye behind this voice has claimed to be less interested in per se in the past. But make no mistake... I am interested in being interested in nuts and bolts. And from what we can gather from the sounds of the past, the Victorians were fascinated by the phonograph's machinery. Accordingly, the majority of this first newspaper article didn't ruminate on projections and imaginings of the technology's future, but rather on describing in detail how the machine physically recorded and reproduced sound using simply a vibrating diaphragm, a stylus, a cylinder, a rotating mechanism, and a sheet of tinfoil. At that time, Technologies were something to be understood, and that went hand in hand with technologies being capable of being understood. In our digital age, and I'm sure the complexity of our technologies is an important factor, we're for the most part more interested in what things do rather than how they do it. If you ask the average person what an MP3 is or what even the internet actually is and how it functions, I don't think they'd be able to tell you. Media technologies nowadays operate for most of us with a sort of holy magic. Their inner workings are not to be understood, but accepted, along with an almost religious faith in what are spoken of as fundamental truths of the digital universe, such as Moore's Law, which states, does it not, that computing power grows exponentially. Does not it? Well, it does, but Gordon Moore never said so. What Gordon Moore actually said initially at least in 1965, was that computer chip power would roughly double every year for at least 10 years. Granted, he would later extend his predictions, but he certainly never declared a law about the physical universe. And this example shows that while the actual statements of researchers and scientists might be guarded, speculative, and contextual, that doesn't stop the contemporary imagination from transforming speculation into something approaching truth or universal or even religious truth. For me, one of the most powerful and present of such truths is the idea of the inevitable rise of AI, which I've already referenced before. There's something deeply mythical, in my opinion even messianic, in the way that AI is spoken of, and I'm thinking particularly of what's been called the singularity the imminent moment when AI technologies will have the intelligence and capacity for recursive self-improvement. This will result, according to some, in an intelligence explosion that's been likened to the coming of a god. Well, I think there are strong connections here to religiously based ideas about rapture and judgment. This conflation and overlap between religion, magic, and science is nothing new. It's been there from the beginning. In fact, it's something of a historical trope to note how throughout history... Scientific thoughts and theories tend to relate, at least, to thoughts and practices that in the popular imagination are seen as their polar opposite, the magical, religious, and mystical. 
With technological developments such as the radio and x-ray, the 19th century was beginning to produce technologies that truly boggle the mind both functionally and mechanistically. These were technologies emerging out of the most advanced scientific ideas of the time. However, these scientific ideas themselves were fundamentally connected to magical ideas, and vice versa. For a small example of this, let's look at telepathy. John Durham Peters, in his book Speaking into Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, notes that the term telepathy, like the phonograph, was a 19th century invention, an invention clearly modeled on the telegraph and later the telephone. The concept of telepathy was invented to help describe and explain spiritualism. Spiritualism, for those who don't know, was a 19th century belief system slash religion that believed in an immortal soul and afterlife, and especially the capacity to communicate with these souls beyond, during, and after death. Now, we can't call it a cult because it wasn't just a small fad. Spiritualism had fervent believers from every sector of society, including Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, and more unexpectedly, perhaps, important scientific luminaries such as key members of the Royal Academy of Science in London. Top scientists professionally admitting belief in ghosts and the afterlife? Yes, it was a strange time, but for them it wasn't spirituality or any New Age wisdom. It was evidence-based science. Spiritualists felt that human consciousness was evolving, and that, like their new scientific instruments, the brain was becoming sensitive to vibrations and stimuli that in the past it hadn't been able to detect. Spiritualism had societies, magazines, groups, and all sorts, but most of all, it had its mediums. These were huge celebrities of the time, and the thing to keep in mind is that they weren't seen as entertainers doing magic tricks, like making things float or summoning the voices of the dead. People believed these things were really occurring. They described the phenomena in the language of science, and they wanted scientific explanations for what was happening. So telepathy was not originally supposed to be paranormal, but was rather an attempt to scientifically explain how messages can pass from the dead to the living, or between living minds. Let's think about the mechanics of telepathy. Intangible messages transmitting through a limbo until captured by a medium that can express the message again through vibration or sound. Well, that's a radio, isn't it? So you see, the idea of radio came long before Marconi. According to Peters, telepathy, and by implication spiritualism, was one of the keys to the development of the radio in the first instance. However, as we've discussed, telepathy in turn was inspired by telegraphy and later telephony. And this is what I mean when I say that science and magic are interrelated. Certainly at that time, but this relationship goes right back to the beginning of science. So let's go there. It's well known that many of the key figures in the early history of science, such as John Dee and Isaac Newton, were hugely invested in occult ideas and practices, and most notably, alchemy. In alchemy, there were no clear distinctions between the scientific and magical, because such distinctions hadn't been invented or codified yet. For example, we don't get the word scientist until 1833, which is a good hundred years or so after Newton died. Or did he? Do, 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 do. While alchemists developed many of the techniques and structures of modern science, such as the laboratory and the experimental method, they did so in the service of mystical and magical objectives and ideas, notably turning base metals into precious metals and developing an elixir of youth. While the goals themselves were logically possible, certainly at the time, 
The alchemists based their research and experimentation upon what we might call a religious faith in what are called the hermetic texts and principles. Newton himself, along with many other prominent scientific figures, literally spent decades studying texts called the Corpus Hermeticum, which derived from 2nd and 3rd century fusions of Greek and Egyptian mystical thought. Newton and his friends were particularly interested in a text called the Emerald Tablet. It's a short text, but they felt it contained all of the secrets of alchemy. Its first documented appearance is in Arabic from around the 7th century, but it had a series of translations from that point, including one from Newton himself. It begins as follows. Tis true without lying, certain and most true. That which is below is like that which is above. This idea, as above, so below, becomes fundamental to the idea of astrology slash astronomy, which, like magic slash science, had not yet been distinguished. As a rationally thinking society, we spent a few hundred years trying to separate these conjoined twins. And indeed, there's been something like absolute success in creating the idea of a binary, particularly between scientific and religious thought, which are nowadays often thought of as diametrically opposed. But opposites, true opposites, only have meaning in relation to each other. And that's the danger with creating opposites, isn't it, Newton? Without darkness, there is no light. Without light, there is no heavy. Without nothing, there is no thing. And without the observer, there is no observed. So consciousness is what constructs reality. So saith the undead priests of quantum mechanics. Thanks for that, Isaac. Be gone now. The point I'm getting at is, one of the new ways that these relationships are continuing is how superficial understandings of quantum mechanics are so often used to justify or substantiate new-agey pick-and-mix spiritual views, for example, about the power of consciousness, the mutable nature of reality, and the healing power of crystals, and sometimes the deodorizing power of crystals too. Okay, moving on. This understanding of science-slash-technology and magic-slash-religion being deeply connected helps us understand what sound recording meant to the Victorians, and what it continues to mean today. The phonograph was an object loaded with both technological and magical fantasies, and as I tried to portray in the first episode, I think today's sound recording technologies in many respects are still powered by the same doublethink. But perhaps the difference between then and now is that whereas our mechanisms have also slipped back into magical realms, what is and was particularly interesting about the first phonograph was a stark contrast between the intensity and mystery of its function and the simplicity of its design. Perhaps I'm showing my age here, but for the Victorians, Edison inventing the phonograph seems to have had a MacGyver-like quality that we'd begin to have a sense of if someone took a shoelace, a string, a mirror, and of course a Swiss Army knife and invented a teleportation device. If you don't know who MacGyver is, well, don't worry about it. And if you do remember MacGyver, you weren't really there, man. Edison was mythologized in his time as the epitome of male genius who could take a sheet of tinfoil and create a sound storage and teleportation system out of it. For the Victorians, the phonograph was both a machine of its time, but also an expression of Edison's unique genius. And accordingly, almost every substantial article written about the phonograph referenced Edison's name and and character. By contrast, figures such as Scott, and particularly Crow, rarely get a mention in this literature. Let's consider an article entitled The Inventor of the Phonograph. The article opens with an homage of sorts to 19th century scientific endeavor. 
stating that the telephone, phonograph, and microphone have granted man a new mastery over sound that will be memorable in the history of science, before adding that the phonograph is universally regarded as the most marvelous of the three, doing for sound what the photograph did for light. After that, we get the biography of Edison promised by the title. He's first described physically with details such as, the most striking feature of his face are his eyes, which are blue-gray, deep-set, intense, and penetrating. Even before photography became an integral part of printed media, looks were still important, for better or worse. Equally vivid are the descriptions of his mental characteristics, which portray Edison as an inventor by sheer dint of native genius, who disliked mathematics and had an incomprehensive electrical knowledge. In these articles, you almost never come across any mention of the role of his fellow researchers at Menlo Park, or of how he built alongside and upon the work of others. People seem to want the story of an everyman hero, who through hard work and God-given talent created new worlds out of silence, like a Beethoven, Wagner, or young god of sorts. And like any new world, this one needed a creation myth or two. And here's how it went, in this article at least. One day, while experimenting with a vibrating telephone diaphragm to which a pricker was fixed, the pricker pierced his finger by the force of the vibrations and drew blood. In an instant, there flashed into his mind the idea of the phonograph. The metaphor employed for his moment of insight was one of light, perhaps more relevant to Edison the electrician, soon to direct his laboratory's gaze towards electric lighting. Another version circulating at this time said that one day, Edison was amusing himself with a deep hat when the vibration of his voice felt through the hat inspired him to consider what a more sensitive material could record. Both stories are probably true at some level, and both stories hint at a very plausible relationship between Edison's deafness and his phonographic discoveries. For while tinkering with telegraphy and telephony, he would have probably spoken more loudly than others on account of his deafness, which would have caused more violent vibrations within those apparatuses. And moreover, he would have been more adept than others at hearing these vibrations with his skin and fingers. While these relationships interest me, they don't seem to have been as interesting to the Victorians. I don't think his deafness was a secret, but unlike my main man Ludwig van, it wasn't the first or even fifth characteristic that people of his time would mention, in writing at least. Instead, I believe the Victorians were more interested in molding a figure of Edison out of the clay of the idea of the self-made man. In America, this idea is often said to originate from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, whose life journey from being one of 17 children of a soap and candle maker to becoming a polymath and founding father of a new nation becomes the archetypical story of the self-made man. But the concept, for Americans at least, was most specifically defined in 1859 by Maryland legend Frederick Douglass, a man who was born into slavery but died as a social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, statesman, and a free man. And this is what he had to say about self-made men. I'm using my generic 19th century American voice. My theory of self-made men is then simply this, that they are men of work. Whether or not such men have acquired material, moral, or intellectual excellence, honest labor, faithfully, steadily, and persistently pursued, is the best if not the only, explanation of their success. These ideas resonated strongly with the aspiring middle and working classes in both America and Britain. In fact, in England that same year of 1859, a book was published that became a veritable 19th century classic. 
It was written by a Scotsman named Samuel Smiles, and it could be described as the original self-help book. It was called Self-Help, and it opens with the famous first line, Heaven helps those who help themselves. Actually, it turns out that Samuel Smiles was deeply depressed. No, I'm just kidding. Well, he might have been, I don't know. But he wrote that he was as happy as any in the world. But that's what they all say, these self-help guys. Anyhow, the book promoted thrift, hope, moral decency, and above all, hard work and perseverance as the secret of success. Moreover, like for Frederick Douglass, success depended not on genius or intellect, but on the energetic use of simple means and ordinary qualities with which nearly all human individuals have been endowed. For Americans and Brits alike, Edison must have been the paragon of this self-made man, a man who, in their imagination, was not blessed with a perfect intellect, but whose inventions ranked alongside the work of the greatest geniuses past and present, and all through the energetic use of simple means and ordinary qualities. In one respect, emphasizing his deafness may have made his achievement seem all the more remarkable, but it seems the tendency was to downplay any such distinctiveness in favor of presenting a man ordinary in most respects, except for his enthusiasm, will to triumph, and perseverance. Of course, as we've heard, he was described as having eureka moments of extraordinary genius, but it was a genius of simplicity, deriving from circumstance and practicality and powered by his work ethic. In fact, Edison played down any such notion of a divine gift of genius. Perhaps he said it best himself in 1903 with his famous quip that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, although he'd later add, but the 1% is pretty important, quite. Okay, so 1859, it's been a big year, the year of Frederick Douglass's speech, the year of self-help, and it was also the year of the publication of one more stocking stuffer, Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. So there we have preservation again. Darwin's work was a manifestation of a dawning understanding of man as a part of nature, and nature as a savage and brutal competition that Herbert Spencer would soon describe as the survival of the fittest. In a new Darwinian world, it was only natural, if regrettable, that the weak get exploited and the strong triumph. But in the other stocking, we have self-help, with its idea of the self-made man, and its dogma that hard work and perseverance was all that was required to succeed in this social struggle for survival. These two ingredients are definitely in the soup of what the more left-leaning among you might consider the noble lie, in a platonic sense, of 19th century Anglo-American culture. The idea that, while the poor and downtrodden were to be prayed for, educated, and pitied, at the same time, every adult deserves to be exactly where they are, for everyone has had a fair, if not equal, shot at making it. So Edison became a folk hero, and perhaps even something like a superhero. So in 1878, when strange and objectionable sounds were found to be emanating from the Metropolitan Elevated Railroad in Manhattan, who were they going to call? Edison. Busters. Edison was commissioned to analyze the sounds as the first phase, presumably, in coming up with a plan to do something about them. So with the help of his friend, Charles Batchelor, they converted his phonograph into a phonograph akin to Scots of yore, so that the sounds from each section of the railway could be studied and interpreted visually. As with Scots phonograms, these recordings were never meant to be heard. But through the magic of technology, there we are. Oh, <laughs> 
As it turned out, the visual documents produced didn't prove particularly useful to anyone at the time, because, well, etched vibration is pretty hard to make sense of with our puny human brains. It was cool, but pretty useless, and according to reports, Edison and Batchelor had to lay low and avoid a few grand jury inquisitions. Once again, a big thank you to firstsounds.org for making that recording available to the world. On the website, you can also find an excellent PDF describing the project in detail, along with illustrations, handwritten notes, images of the recordings, and all sorts of reflections of good old American elbow grease. Edison was an American, after all, and insofar as the phonograph was considered his, well, it was also an American. And in this respect, ideas about America played an important role in how the phonograph was imagined. Take, for example, an article titled The Phonograph at the Exhibition, which printed in England. The article reported on a quite dramatic experiment that had been recently conducted in Paris, where a song being sung at Versailles was recorded through telephone onto a phonograph situated on the Champ de Mars. The song was, according to the article, reproduced to satisfaction half an hour later. The writer suggests that after the success of the experiment, the Academy of Sciences in Paris, who were at first incredulous, affirmed the phonograph to be more than a Yankee swindle involving ventriloquism. This description of the phonograph as more than a Yankee swindle is revealing in several respects. Regarding the technology itself, it reflects the disbelief and astonishment that the concept of the phonograph provoked. America was imagined as a, to abuse the term, self-made country of industrial, scientific, and technological achievement where the phonograph could have been invented, but also a land of exaggeration, fraud, and profiteering where its invention could have been hoaxed, or otherwise not quite as advertised. Confirmation of the claims of an American inventor required for British audiences, and I dare say perhaps for many American audiences as well, the approval of European scientific opinion. The story of Edison, Batchelor, and the Railroad, and the experiments in Paris also point to another key aspect of the early idea of sound recording. It was a technology that belonged in the kingdom of science. It was by and large a scientific instrument, and as such, its proper locations were scientific spaces, and its proper operators were scientists. Proper operator. Say that five times fast. Proper ah. That being said, almost, the notion of scientific spaces and the relationships between scientist and non-scientist were very different concepts for the Victorians. Earlier in the episode, we spoke about new technologies as something that Victorians were very interested in, not only functionally, but also mechanistically. Well, how did they learn about and experience these new technologies? We've seen that newspapers and other printed media were obviously extremely important, but with all this fascination and interest in new technology, surely they'd want to experience, say, the phonograph as well, right? Right. Even before TED Talks, Discovery Channels, and films like Interstellar, science was box office gold. Science and technology lectures and demonstrations were a hugely popular form of both education and entertainment, and they took place up and down the British Isles in theaters, churches, lecture halls, universities, town halls, music venues, institutes, museums, and, well, just about anywhere where people could sit down. And make no mistake, this was popular entertainment targeted at all social classes. Whereas some lectures would explore the implications of Darwinian theory on the evolution of the eel, you would also have scientists as renowned as Michael Faraday charging spectators good money to watch him, well, take out his eel and electrocute stuff, I guess. That was actually one of the most popular exhibitions of the century uh, in some accounts. In the same way that science and religion overlapped in important and revealing ways, 
so too did science and entertainment. Scientific thought and experimentation were one of the pleasures of life, and into this world the phonograph was born. Sure enough, within a few months we start to read about reviews and descriptions of scientific lectures and demonstrations featuring the phonograph. I guess in a way, these gigs would have been Recorded Sound's first tours, and the lecturers would have been, well, the first recording artists and DJs in the same breath, in some way. Well, in the next episode, we're going to attend one of these lectures and hear what all the fuss is about for ourselves. But for now, thank you for listening, and I'll meet you at the lecture hall in a couple weeks' time, 49,870 days ago. As ever, if you have any comments about anything you've heard in this episode, please post them on the website at noiseinthegroove.com. But for now, so long, and thank you for listening.